Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about foreign policy and world affairs. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. And in this show, we discuss topical global issues, have conversations with foreign affairs thought leaders and newsmakers, and give you the context you need to understand the world today. Go to globaldispatchespodcast.com to learn more. And now on with the show. Sudan is at a crossroads. In April, popular protests led to the ouster of the country's longtime ruler, Omar al-Bashir. He was toppled in a coup. But the peaceful protests did not stop. Rather, the protesters held their ground outside the headquarters of the military junta, demanding that they, the civilians and not the military, lead the transition to democracy. The standoff between the military council and civilian protesters held firm until early June when a paramilitary group known as the Rapid Support Forces, or RSF, attacked the protesters, killing over 100 people. At the time of recording, the situation remained fluid. The protesters had called for a general strike and are now reportedly back in negotiation with the junta. On the line with me to discuss the situation in Sudan is Zachariah Cherian Mompili, a professor of political science at Vassar College. We last spoke for this podcast in early January, just as the protest movement was beginning to pick up steam. And that is where we pick up the story today. We kick off discussing the circumstances that led to the ouster of Omar al-Bashir, and then have a longer conversation about the political and geopolitical dynamics that are shaping events in one of Africa's largest and most strategically significant countries. And one announcement before we begin, if you've been listening to this podcast recently, you know that I am releasing episodes of my long-form interviews with foreign policy thought leaders and newsmakers who discuss their life and career, often from an early age and often with digressions about the historic foreign policy events and circumstances that their life and career intersected with. I've now posted 10 of these long-form interviews. The two newest ones I've posted this week include my conversation with David Miliband, the former Foreign Secretary of the United Kingdom and current head of the International Rescue Committee, and Jendaya Frazier, who was the Assistant Secretary of State for Africa during the George W. Bush administration and drove much policy towards Sudan during those years. To check out this bonus content, you can go to patreon.com slash global dispatches or click on the link in the description field of this podcast episode. From there, you can become a premium subscriber, unlock access to those bonus episodes, as well as complimentary access to my daily global news clips service, Dawn's Digest. There are other rewards as well. Check those out on the Patreon page. All right, now here is my conversation with Professor Zechariah Cherian Mampili. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting season four, 
launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. So the protests, I think, as you know, uh, began in December, uh, initially triggered by a tremendous spike in the cost of bread. Uh, but quickly, the protests started to accumulate strength and spread around the country. And the demands of the protesters shifted from uh, merely a reduction in the bread prices to the fall of the regime itself. Uh, in April, uh, after four months of protests and a massive uh, number of protests in, in Khartoum itself, which is the capital city, uh, including a huge sit-down in front of army headquarters, uh, the, the army essentially forced Bashir to uh, give up the presidency, and he was arrested uh, and placed under house arrest. Since then, there has been something called the Transitional Military Council, uh, largely comprised of generals and other commanders who were close to the Bashir regime, uh, who have taken over power. And there has been a protracted stalemate on one side between the leaders of the Transitional Military Council, who are insisting that they should be allowed to oversee the transition to democracy, uh, and the protest movement, which instead of uh, retreating after Bashir was deposed, uh, remained in the streets and actually increased their presence, uh, setting up a massive encampment uh, in front of the military headquarters in Khartoum, yeah. uh, as well as in other parts of the country. Uh, the, the resilience of the protesters and the fact that they are not willing to back down or had not been willing to back down was something that has really sort of inspired and fascinated me. Um, you know, it seems at every inflection point, the transitional military council wanted to wrest power away from civilian control, but the civilian protesters were able to increase their presence and increase pressure on that military council um, until uh, the time in which they were able to actually sway events and, and there was a legitimate transition to civilian control. Like their demands were, were very uh, stern throughout. I think it has been fairly extraordinary, and I think that it's important to recognize that the Sudanese protesters have learned both from the history in Sudan itself, uh, as well as sort of the uh, failed experiments with transitions to democracy in places like Egypt. So what you see are very, very resilient and I would say inspirational protests, protesters who have decided from the get-go uh, that they will not settle for anything less than a full civilian-led transition to democracy. Uh, and that, I think, is why the stakes have been so high and, and why we've seen the unfortunate turn of events over the past week. So so let's talk about that unfortunate turn of events. Um, you know, at time of recording, there are, it seems, nearly 200 people who have been killed in violence uh, in which, you know, this a new paramilitary force seems to have been essentially sort of bust in and are, are sort of attacking protesters around the, the city of Khartoum. Can you talk a little bit about what led to that crackdown, who these forces are? Absolutely. So the key figure behind all of this is a man named Hameti, or is, he's colloquially known as Hameti. Uh, he is technically the second in command of the military council. Um, but by many accounts, he's perhaps the most powerful figure uh, within Sudan's ruling junta currently. Uh, Hameti has a, a long history uh, in Sudan. Uh, he was the, the commander who was put in charge by Bashir to establish the paramilitary forces known as the Janjaweed, which in the mid-2000s uh, were, were accused uh, with pretty robust evidence of engaging in a variety of uh, massive human uh, war crimes against humanity, war crimes and crimes against humanity. And genocide. Uh, yeah, and genocide, of course. And so Hameti's hands have been very dirty now for about uh, two decades. 
and his sort of ascension into the top ranks of the military council was always uh, a tremendous sign that the military council was not a legitimate partner for a democratic transition, but rather was really trying to see how they could enshrine their power, even if ostensibly they were able to hold some sort of electoral process. Uh, in terms of the specific crackdown that's happened, essentially, you know, once uh, the war in Darfur was largely pacified, uh, and this was like a decade-long campaign organized by Hementi's troops, uh, the Janjaweed was largely moved into Khartoum and took on a different name, the Rapid Support Forces. Uh, and they have operated somewhat independently of the national military itself. So Hameti essentially controls a 10,000-strong private militia force uh, that he has been able to deploy in various contexts. And he is essentially the prime mover behind the latest crackdown. Uh, it's his forces, the Rapid Support Forces, uh, once known as the Janjaweed, uh, who have been orchestrating the terror in the streets of, the Khart- in, in the streets of Khartoum. And it's also worth noting that the RSF, the Rapid Support Forces, from which the Janjaweed emerge or emerge from the Janjaweed in, in Darfur in the early 2000s, are also accused of a whole host of human rights abuses in, in the southern part of Sudan as well, right? In like Blue Nile, Kordofan, that area? Yeah, so they've essentially been uh, the sort of force within the country's military that has been used to do the dirty work uh, in many parts of the country. So, you know, Sudan's military is a huge, massive force. It is divided. There is some professional elements within it. Uh, And it's useful to think of the RSF as as sort of a a proxy force uh, who can be deployed to do all these ugly things all over the country uh, without it tainting uh, the Sudanese military overall, uh, which, of course, I think is a, a false distinction to draw, but one that thus far the Sudanese military is insisting on. If you if you look at the response uh, that the Transitional Military Council released after the killings, their essential response was that they had no idea who was behind the attacks, even though all fingers point very directly to the RSF. It's it's always interesting, not not to digress too too far, but when you have these kinds of situations in which you there, there are these kind of massive human rights abuses, sometimes bordering on genocide, there's always this like alternative line of um, authority. Uh, there's that's that's sort of not standard. We have these paramilitary groups that are ones that are actually carrying out the 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 extreme human rights abuses, whereas the sort of conventional lines of authority and lines of command, chains of command, are sort of ostensibly have their hands clean. Yeah, I think that's absolutely correct, and I think it's important to recognize that you know part of the way in which we try to ascribe culpability in these sorts of events is by establishing direct lines of command. And that can be exceedingly difficult to do when you're relying on such informal forces such as the RSF to orchestrate these attacks. So can you describe about what happened uh, earlier this week, late last week, when the RSF was essentially, it seems like, let loose on uh, protesters in Khartoum? What what do we know about uh, what went down? Well, since April, uh, after the departure of Bashir, uh, the military was essentially hoping that that would uh, satisfy the protesters and that they would uh, return home and the country would return to some sort of normal uh, with a, a military or military orchestrated transition process. Uh, they'd actually uh, initiated a set of negotiations with the main representatives of the opposition movement. Um, and uh, the negotiations between the two sides continued for almost two months. And we're pretty close to arriving at an agreement. Uh, In the end, what happened was that the civilian forces were essentially demanding 
that the that the civilians be allowed to oversee the transition to democracy and the military must cede power. And here is where you see the factions within the military, some of whom, like the RSF, essentially said that that was a non-starter. Uh, and so the talks essentially came to a halt. Uh, during this entire period, it's important to emphasize that part of the reason that the military felt obliged to speak to the, to the protesters was because they never left their positions in front of the military headquarters uh, and at multiple sites throughout Khartoum, as well as around the country. Uh, and hence, uh, Sudan has been in a state of limbo for the past two months, uh, as both sides essentially dug in uh, and tried to uh, get the upper hand in the negotiations. Uh, after the talks broke down, uh, that's when we've sort of seen the escalation of violence. And I think that's what we saw on Monday of last week, um, when it was essentially the RSF was given a, a free reign to go in and, and forcefully break up the camps, um, including the main sites where the protesters have been camped out since really December. So according to the latest reporting I've seen, and, and you certainly have, you know, your, your ear kind of closer to the, uh, the Khartoum street, as it were, um, the, the, the encampments are, are, are basically gone right now, right? And, but the protest movement has at once sort of moved underground, but is also sort of organizing and seems successfully so like a, a general strike. Yes, that's absolutely correct. So yes, the main encampment, uh, which, you know, I should mention had become this, uh, tremendous site uh, of, of creativity, uh, of freedom, uh, where many young people and people from you know throughout the country converged, you know, and were hosting uh, educational sessions, uh, concerts, other types of activities to try to spread the word about I what they were doing. I re remember reading this this story. I think maybe it was in the New York Times about like a library that was just sort of being set up there, and it was started to give away all these formally banned books. Exactly. I mean, I think there was really innovative uh, things that were occurring. I mean, I, to give you a reference, something like the Occupy Wall Street site, but a much larger scale uh, was unfolding over the past uh, four months in, in Khartoum. Uh, and so that site has essentially been completely wiped out. I've seen images and you can find these online. Uh, and it is truly devastating to see sort of before and after images of what happened to the site uh, after the crackdown last Monday. Um, but as you point out, I don't think in any way should we assume that this is the end of the protest movement. Uh, as you mentioned, the Sudan Professionals Association, which is one of the main coordinators of the movement, uh, have announced a general strike. And from whatever, well, what I've heard uh, is that Khartoum is essentially at a standstill. So even as the streets have been emptied from, by the RSF attack last week, um, nothing is actually happening in the country. There is no services being provided. The businesses are not open. Um, and the protest continues. So one of the sort of emerging sort of dynamics, it seems, of the uh, of the situation in Sudan right now is the influence of outside powers, uh, specifically Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates, which uh, it's been reported are supporting the, the military junta right now. Um, how do you assess their role in influencing events in Khartoum and Number two, sort of what sort of outside influence might be brought to bear on the, the junta right now? Saudi Arabia's role in this, uh, like its role in many other countries in the region, uh, has been uh, 
extremely abominable. Uh, a few weeks ago, Hameti himself actually traveled to meet with MBS, the ruler of Saudi Arabia, and he was guaranteed something like $3 billion in aid uh, to help him survive financially during this period. Uh, in other words, the Saudi regime has essentially given the green light to the Sudanese military to engage in the crackdown that they uh, orchestrated last week. So the external role here is essential. Uh, the military uh, in Sudan does not have a lot of popular support. Uh, it is not, you know, whatever credibility it may have had for getting rid of Bashir uh, has largely evaporated as a result of the violence that they've orchestrated. Uh, and so much of the way in which it is able to survive is a result of its connections to the Saudis and the UAE in particular. Um, and I think that that's essential to understand why the um, why the regime is able to push forward uh, despite having almost no internal support from the Sudanese people themselves. So the Saudis are, are essentially funding the RSF at this point? That would be correct, yes. And then they have, let me point out that they have funded the RSF for quite some time. And I think part of the way the RSF has emerged as perhaps the most significant military force within the country uh, is that the RSF has been contributing troops to the war in Yemen uh, that the Saudis have been orchestrated over the past five years. Um, and so that relationship is not a new one, but one that just continues uh, the brutal counterinsurgency uh, that, that the Saudis have orchestrated in Yemen. Uh, now it's unfolding in the streets of Khartoum. So so presumably then it's it's the Saudis that hold a lot of the diplomatic cards here, if not all of the, the diplomatic cards. Well, I think that's partially true, but I would also point out that, you know, other countries have not been particularly forthcoming uh, in supporting the protesters. The EU has been uh, pretty astonishingly quiet. Uh, the U.S. government has done relatively little uh, beyond condemn the violence. And so I think there are uh, things that countries could do, uh, but thus far at least uh, no None of the, no no major Western power uh, has done much to sort of push back against the Saudis, uh, as well as the Russians and Chinese who have prevented any sort of discussion over the Sudanese crises uh, within the Union Security Council. So, so I mean, what would be uh, something that the United States, for example, could do? Is is it a matter of leaning on their allies, the the Saudis, to try to get them to rein in the RSF and and have the junta more uh, deliberately engage the civilian protesters? Well, I mean, yes, I think obviously the U.S. has tremendous leverage over the Saudis. Uh, you know, we <laughs> or are, maybe the other way around, it seems. Yeah, it is difficult to to draw the lines, but uh, it is hard to see in this current context where, where the Trump administration just announced that they will be selling additional weapons to the Saudis using an emergency declaration uh, that they would condemn the behavior of the Saudis in this current moment. Um, I think, you know, the AU, the African Union, uh, has been one of the few voices that has tried to lend some support to the protesters, though it's unclear what it actually means for the AU to offer support to the protesters. Uh, the AU, of course, right now is headed up by the Egyptians, um, and so it is questionable uh, whether the AU support is actually meaningful uh, beyond a statement. But mm -hmm. to their credit, at least, uh, they have condemned the regime for the massacres that took place last week. And how significant... Was it that the AU suspended Sudan's membership? I think it's unclear. I think, you know, if you look at the AU, the AU itself does not 
define uh, well the, the EU does not consider military dictatorships to be illegitimate uh, on their own merit obviously uh, with the CC regime being at the head of the EU clearly uh, the EU doesn't have a problem with military dictatorships so it's not clear to me why uh, the EU decided to go after the Sudanese regime uh, specifically I think part of it is there is a sense of frustration about the uh, stalemate in Sudan I think a number of autocrats both in the African and Arab worlds, uh, are looking very warily uh, at the situation in Sudan. Uh, on one level, they do support the military regime, but they're also, I think, uh, rightfully afraid uh, of the strength of the protest movement, the uh, ways in which you know the usual tactics of repressing opposition movements are not working in Sudan. Um, and so there's a, a sense that they just want this to go away. Um, and I think part of what we're seeing now is is a reflection uh, of that sort of wishful thinking that this could just disappear, um, even if there's no kind of better, deeper understanding of the political uh, the path forward. Uh, you know, and as you mentioned earlier, you know, one of the sort of really inspirational, amazing things about this protest movement is how resilient it has been and how um, immune it's been to, as you said earlier, like the conventional ways that a government or a military suppresses a protest movement. It's, it's sort of been able to uh, overcome a lot of those obstacles, but now we seem to be entering this, this sort of new phase. Can you, I guess, talk a little bit about how you see the protest movement strategy perhaps sort of changing in the coming days and weeks as they're entering this kind of new era. I think internet has been shut down. There's, you know, they, they can't assemble on the streets for fear of being shot, it seems. So sort of what's next, do you think? Well, I think there's a couple of different trajectories this could go. I mean, I, the amongst the sort of organizers and activists that I pay attention to and, and try to engage with, um, there is really a strong desire to retain the nonviolent character of the movement thus far, um, while recognizing that that is becoming increasingly difficult to try to convince ordinary Sudanese to go out into the streets and take the risks of being uh, raped uh, or murdered. So the... Um, the risk, I think, going forward is that you lose support for a nonviolent solution uh, and that people feel that there's no other option but to turn towards more violent options. Um, and there are obviously a number of different opposition forces in Sudan, uh, namely you know, groups uh, operating in places like the Nuba Mountains or Kordofan or even Darfur uh, that have largely stayed out of the protest thus far, um, but could be mobilized to use violence if it turns in that direction. So there, there's sort of no guarantees that this will sort of remain a sort of nonviolent, uh, a nonviolent protest movement, it seems. And I just, you know, sort of seeing the trajectory of what's happening here, one thinks obviously of, of Egypt, one also seems to think of, of uh, Syria, uh, you know, which kind of emerged in a similar sort of nonviolent protest against a authoritarian regime, but then descended into this, you know, metastasizing conflict. I think there are parallels, but I, I, I wouldn't want to overdraw the analogy. I think that um, there are some substantive differences here. One of the big ones, uh, you know, Sudanese are, are perhaps far more sophisticated in terms of organizing protest movements than the Egyptians were. Uh, so one of the weaknesses of the Egyptian revolution 
uh, was that you know the protesters largely left the street once elections were announced, and that uh, created a space for existing political parties to essentially co-opt the energies of the movement itself, which is how you end up with the Muslim Brotherhood uh, essentially being the main benefactor uh, mm-hmm. of the protest movement in its early days, uh, despite the fact that the Muslim Brotherhood wasn't necessarily behind the revolution in the first place. Uh, in the case of Sudan, you know what is really interesting is that there has been a suspicion not only. Uh, of the military regime, but also the opposition parties, uh, especially the figure Savik al-Mahdi, who was a former ruler of Sudan uh, and who initially in the early days of the protest tried to uh, claim some sort of leadership over the movement itself. And what we saw from the protesters uh, was a disavowal of that kind of old-style electoral transitions uh, in which elites essentially pass power from one to another um, without any sort of consideration for who actually constitutes the protest movement itself. So I think, you know, there is a, a way in which, you know, part of what has led to the current crisis is that the protesters, is correctly, I think, uh, are, are pushing back against any attempt to manage uh, the transition to democracy in a way that allows the regime and allows Sudanese elites in general uh, to retain power uh, even if they, you know, bring some new faces uh, into the presidency. So, um, you know, it's 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 certainly a difficult moment. Um, but my sense of it is that, you know, ultimately these sorts of movements are about building uh, counter power to the existing uh, regime. And on that level, I think that the Sudanese protesters have gone far beyond uh, what the Egyptian or even the Syrian protesters were able to accomplish. Um. Lastly, what sort of events or um, indicators will you be watching for over the coming sort of weeks and, and months that might suggest to you how the situation will play out? Like, are there any kind of key inflection points that you see down the road that might suggest um, how what the next iteration of, of this drama will be? Well, I think that the the big question for me is going to be the economic situation. Um, so far, the regime has been able to persist, as we discussed already, uh, with external support from Saudi Arabia and the UAE in particular. Um, but the economy has essentially come to a standstill. There is very little production uh, going on um, across various sectors of the economy. Uh, and that means that the regime is likely to face some sort of major financial crisis in the near future, uh, if it isn't already. Uh, And it's important to remind you listeners that the trigger for this entire uh, protest in the first place was a major decline in the performance of the Sudanese economy uh, with the Sudanese pound essentially losing half its value in in, in, in the three months prior to the outbreak of the protest in the first place. So you're dealing with a very, very depressed and fragile economy already. uh, And now uh, to be dealing with the large-scale protest movement, uh, dealing with the sort of uncertainty um, that the protest movement is causing economically. Um, I'm not sure how much longer the regime can trudge forward unless some sort of external actors uh, massively increase the kind of support that they're offering to the regime. So Saudi Arabia would have to keep its financial pipeline open, basically. I would say so, yes. And I think $3 billion sounds like a lot of money, uh, but when you're dealing with the country of almost 50 million people uh, with a military force that is as massive as the Sudanese, uh, it's money that they're probably burning through at a very rapid clip. And so I guess in Saudi Arabia, it just needs to decide if it's worth it for them, if this expenditure is, is really worth it to prop up uh, the RSF and, and then the junta. 
I would think, I mean, I, you know, I will say that Saudi Arabia does seem to have unlimited resources when it comes to uh, repression. Uh, so I, I don't think they're anywhere near dried up. Uh, but yeah, I think it is a political choice at this point and whether or not uh, the relationships between Hamedi in particular and MBS uh, is strong enough uh, that the Saudis will continue to prop up his regime. I should also mention in case people are wondering why the Saudis are uh, so interested in what's happening in Sudan, you know, there's a number of factors that are relevant here. The, you know, obviously there are neighbors across um, a very narrow body of water, but Saudi Arabia also has massive investments in Sudan in the agricultural sector in particular, uh, and has really been trying to use Sudan as a breadbasket for the country. Uh, so it's not simply about uh, you know, autocrats uh, trying to prop up each other, uh, but there are direct uh, financial considerations that motivate the Saudi regime as well. Uh, well, Zachariah, thank you so much for your time. This is very helpful. Thank you for having me, Mark. All right. Thank you all for listening. Thank you to Zachariah. That was very helpful. And if you want like a deeper historic background into the protest movement, into Omar al-Bashir and Sudan, check out that episode from uh, early January. I'm actually pretty proud that I was uh, able to get on that story really early and it obviously turned into a huge, huge story when the protests secured the ouster of Omar al-Bashir, but we'll sort of see where the story developed next. And a big thank you to all of you who are premium subscribers. You can expect two new episodes every week, or at least two. A big thank you to those of you who are premium subscribers. You can expect one or two new of my long-form episodes every week, and I would strongly encourage those of you who are thinking about it to go ahead, take the plunge, become a premium subscriber of the show, support my journalism, support our work, what we're up to on this podcast, and earn great rewards for yourself. I'll see you next time. Bye.